Welcome to Dragon Talk. Yay! So excited for you to be here. Did you like my sound effects? I did like the sound effects, yeah. yeah. Those were your, uh, uh, you know, Centrum 100. Um, my, my elderberry supplements? <laughs> <laughs> Centrum 21. Is that like Geritol? Yeah. <laughs> that was, I was making an old joke. Is that an old was. joke? <laughs> yeah. Well, at least you're not extinct. Uh, well, on this official Dungeons and Dragons podcast. That's right. Because be I'm worse. Greg Tito and Shelly Moo and I are going to talk to uh, an amazing person, Lucas Zellers, who is doing uh, tons of research on extinct animals and how and to bring them into Dungeons and Dragons. So cool. Yeah. What a cool idea. And the this guy is, uh, he's got a lot of animal facts. He is one of those people that you're like, tell us about octopuses, and then boom. Yep. Facts. Here you go. Facts yeah. occur, and it's such a great uh, way to discuss how Dungeons and Dragons came about, that whole idea of looking into the past, uh, as well as looking into the future and how we can make our future a better place. So tons of fun stuff. Check out that interview uh, with Lucas Sellers coming up. You're going to like it. But in the meantime, we have a really fun interview that, Shelley, you did. Uh, you know, I did, and I brought back a returning uh, favorite. Returning guest. Yes, returning yes, guest, yes. Dr. Terrence McMullen, I, the professor of philosophy at Eastern Washington U- University, um, to talk about, because he does a lot of work with the uh, Adventurers League, and he has obviously experience running lots of games for not just new players, but players that are new to each other. That's a really interesting distinction, yeah. It is, yes. So we do talk a lot about in, like how to make a new player feel welcome, but also like how do you get a group of, of new players to gel mm-hmm. and have like that really fun party bonding experience in an environment where they might, you know, people might be dropping in and out and, you know, because that's kind of like Adventures League is kind of meant to be like casual and there when you need it. But totally cool if you can't make it and really cool for you to just try out D&D. Awesome. Well, so that's, that's a really good fantastic advice. topic for a How to DM segment, which we're going to listen to right now. All right. Hi, everyone, and welcome to How to Dungeon Master, a.k.a. How to DM. Um, I am Shelly, and I am with a wonderful guest, a returning guest to uh, Dragon Talk, to this segment, Dr. Terrence McMullen, an award-winning educator and author and teacher of philosophy. Philosophy. At at Eastern Washington University. Welcome back. Yay. Yay. Shelly, thank you so much for having me. I am am over... I'm over the moon that you're having me on a second time. I'm in disbelief. I'm so honored. This is this is a great treat. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I am honored that you said that, yes, that you would come back. And I knew that you would be a wonderful guest for this segment because of all of your experience. Um, DMing for kids, DMing for, for new players, for uh, your work with Adventurers League. And you have a really fun topic today that we're going to call How to DM new friends. And what I love about that is because even though they might not be new to D&D, 
They're new to each other at the table. And of course, the end result is, of course, they're going to be friends. Obviously. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, first of all, I commend you for going with this topic, how to DM for new friends, rather than the first topic I pitched, which was how to DM for other grumpy middle-aged academics. I think, <laughs> I think, I think this idea is going to have a much more reach. Um, I don't know. Want, we'll yeah. come back for the other one for sure. No, but, but all joking aside, this, this is really important and, 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 and near and dear to my heart. Um, I, I, I don't just love Dungeons & Dragons. I don't just love role-playing games. I love how they fit into our lives. Um, and and uh, you and I are, are talking through this powerful technology, and it's great. Uh, but I, I really look forward to being and meeting you in person one day. And Me too. and um, I think that being able to role playing games are a wonderful architecture for us to do something that's incredibly important that we're that we often lose the ability to do in our technological age, which is to just meet new people. Um, I mean, I can't count the number of times that that I meet somebody who gets wrapped up in their in their job, in their work, in their 30s, in their 40s, and your social world can kind of telescope down to just your work and your family. And so many people say, "Gosh, I, I really wish I just knew how to meet someone else my age, or or not even my age, just just have new friends." And I love that Dungeons and Dragons and other games like this give us this opportunity to meet new friends, which. Uh, you know, maybe our parents' generation, our grandparents' generation, it was the most normal thing in the world to go bowling and meet somebody, to go to the club and play right. cards and meet somebody. And and I think Dungeons & Dragons are one of the few things that we have that can do that really important job of of kind of knitting the social fabric back together. I think that is absolutely true. And I always hear, and especially... I've I've always heard it from men, especially that they do feel like they need to have an activity to kind of gather around in order to like have that friend group. I feel like me, if I'm just out with my girlfriends, we don't we can just take a, a long walk and we'll be fine, or just sit down with a glass of wine and it's great. But a lot of times, like it could be a football game or it's poker night, right, but right. it's also Dungeons and Dragons. Right. I mean, literally, just this past Sunday. We had an experience. I'm jumping ahead of my notes here, but uh, but uh, but I have to mention it. Where we were playing a fairly small table at, at the the usual place that I play at, at Merlin's Games in Spokane, and uh, and just before the start of the game at about 11:50, a, a, a gentleman walks in and we say hi, and he says, "Is is this the Dungeons and Dragons game?" And we say, "Sure," and and we introduce him and we meet him, and you know, and I'm driving home, and and I get home, and I'm like, "Honey, honey, I met this really cool new guy. His name is Kurosh, and he moved here from California." And, and we're going to play again next week, um, oh, and it's just, I love it's just that. and it's just it's wonderful uh, to 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 get to new meet new people, which we really need, especially after this pandemic that was so brutal for so many reasons. Um, yeah. To just have a chance to to get to meet people and, and do cool fun stuff with them. Yeah, and just to use it like your new friend did as a way to like start finding a community in a new place. Right, right, yeah. Uh, Spokane, I mean, uh, has a lot of people moving into it. Uh, a lot of people are immigrating into Spokane. And I've noticed in the last four years, which is about how long I've been really active with Adventurers League, there's not a month that goes by that we don't have one or two people wander in with the same story. I used to play a lot in California. I used to play a lot in Denver. And I'm new to, to Spokane. And I and I want to meet some... I mean, they always say it like this. I want to I want to meet new people to play D&D &D with. But it's also, I, I want to make new friends. I want to yeah. have a new social circle. 
Um, and, and, you know, I've made probably a dozen friends in the last few years um, just through playing D&D. And it's, it's a really wonderful opportunity that I absolutely would not have without it. I, I agree. There is that bonding that happens. Yeah, in- absolutely. All right. Well, so as the dungeon master... It is, you know, it's everybody's job to welcome the new players to the table, of course. But uh, what are some tips that you have for DMing to kind of like help this group gel together? Sure, sure. So most of what I will say comes from the context of Adventurers League play. Which, which, uh, in case some of your listeners don't know, it's it is um, a, a more structured, transportable way to play D anD D, which is a really wonderful way where where everybody can come in, kind of come in from zero and play a game together because of of uh, a few basic, easy to learn set rules and and agreements uh, that that are there for the game. Um, so a lot of what I'm saying, uh, I've learned from my excellent local DM, a wonderful guy by the name of Bill Foreman, um, but also some of the Adventure League organizers like Maat Crook and uh, Amy Linzura. So the first thing that I would suggest is um, to have a designated organizer. Um, you get into this shorthand with the, the usuals, right? They'll, they'll be the usual people who show up every week. And you get into the habit of assuming, well, everybody knows what we're going to do. Well, everybody who's there knows what we're going to do, but the new folks maybe don't. So make sure that you have a designated organizer who's going to be there whenever your game day is. For us, it's Sunday afternoon, and, and we take a moment to make sure there's going to be somebody there to, to kind of hold the torch, as it were. Um, have a posted code of conduct. Um, oh, this is really important so that people know um, – We've thought about what to do if um, somebody has questions. We've thought about the fact that we have a base understanding of how we're going to treat each other. Um, And more important, though, than these two things, having a designated organizer, having a code of conduct. But make sure that you have, and this is something you mentioned earlier, Shelley, cultivate a welcoming culture at your table. Um, Make sure that it's not just the DM's job to kind of poke their head up from the screen and say hi to the new person. Um, Be able to say like, hi, um, why don't you sit next to uh, Kristen and and she can can show you what we're doing today. Um, Make sure that everybody at your table shares this ethos uh, of of being committed to being a welcoming group. And so, for example, I I mentioned earlier uh, in our conversation that we, we met this wonderful new guy and he came in just before our game started, um, and I was busy. I was the DM. I was busy, you know, sitting on my maps and my minis, and I and I kind of want to go through and calculating the, you know, um, average party level, all the stuff that you need to do for an adventure league game. And I was able to turn to my son. I said, Liam, could you could you help roll him an AL legal character? Could you could you show him what AL is? Because he had played D anD D, but he hadn't played Adventures League, and he didn't know how we did it. And so, just being able to know that I could have gone to two or three other people at the table and show him showed him that that um, that he was welcome, that there were going to be people who have an attitude of, we want you here. Right. Uh, and you being new is no problem at all. We actually like this so much, we're happy to have you join us. So make sure that there's ways that people can see that in, in effect. Yeah, that's, that's really important because how intimidating is it to, you know, walk into 
a new place. Right. And to like try to join in a lot of cases a group that's already been playing together. And of course, right. like that's you know, that's what's great about Adventurers League and playing at your local store is that it's it's meant for you to be able to drop in, drop out, but it still, of course, can be a little bit intimidating, especially if it's like a group that's, you know, kind of got their own chemistry going and their right. experience with each other and you don't, you know, but. Right, right. That's that absolutely right. And I mean, we also had another gentleman who showed up like 30 minutes before the end of the game. Um, and I still pause the game to say, hi, welcome. I'm Terry. Uh, we play here every Sunday from noon till 4.30. So we're, we're almost done with this game, but please come back next time. And I'm happy to hang out with you afterwards to, to kind of show you what we do. And he oh, just sat nice. down at the table and he was flipping through his player's handbook and, and listening and asking people questions. So we, he didn't actually play that game because we were almost over. But still, he, he, we made a, a, a clear effort to show him that he was welcome, right. to show him that, that we wanted him. Uh, to come back. So you also, you brought up the code of conduct, which is um, is interesting in that a lot of times groups will have their session zero together to right. you know, talk about a lot of the things that are probably included in your code of conduct. And when you are, have a group that's meant to have players drop in, drop out of, and new new people are coming in and out, how do you incorporate some like the code of contact. Is it like they sit down at the table and you casually slide a document <laughs> across? I them? mean, we actually we actually will um, briefly announce it at the beginning. Okay, we'll briefly announce that there's a code of conduct. We use a Discord, so we say, "Hey, everybody, get on our Discord," which is also good to lead people there. Um, so that people know, you know, sometimes DMs will just decide on the fly what they're running. Sometimes, if you know a couple days ahead of time, you'll post it. Um, so we want people to see that. So we'll let them know about the Discord. We'll let them know the basics of what the Code of Conduct is. Another related point, we'll, we'll talk about um, what our safety tools are. Okay. Um, at each table. Um, and then um, ideally, um, we kind of revise it so we don't have it up right now, but we would post it just near where we play so that people can can see it. And that's primarily so that they can see the emails of the organizers in case they have questions. If somebody wanders in you know, on a Tuesday at 7 and there's nobody there, they can see what our contact information is. So we just take it. It's, it's so easy. You just take a beat at the beginning to lay what the basic uh, assumptions are, right? Um, yeah. Uh, we res- the, the 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 people who are playing are going to show respect to each other at all times. Uh, we are here to be equally committed to everyone having fun, to everyone um, being welcome, um, and uh, and taking care of each other. That's, I mean, that goes a long way, I think, to making people feel comfortable sitting down at the table so yeah that's that's right and i mean this is something uh, i i i i don't know if this is a compliment or or uh praising uh, uh what is it damning with faint praise but a lot of times people say like you really play you really dm like you're a teacher uh like everything's so organized and i'm like i'd say that's you, a compliment did you just call me boring uh, but anyway <laughs> no. uh, i mean to me this comes from teaching um and uh i i always first class is always read the syllabus and i say this is not a this is not a pointless bit of busy work. This is really important. This is our common code. This is our, our shared contract. This is our shared understanding. And you want everyone to know what the ground rules are um, so that everybody feels comfortable. And now this leads to uh, an, another uh, kind of related point. Um, and this doesn't just apply to Adventures League. This is, this is something that I think is more true for homebrew games. Um, 
don't presume that your style is shared by everyone. So um, I want to make sure, I mean, I truly believe there's no right way to play D&D, right? I mean, right. that's part of the coolness of it is it can be so infinitely malleable, right? But if, especially if you're playing a homebrew game, make sure the new player knows what your style is, right? Um, are you into all three pillars in a balanced way? Or is it really just combat or really just role play? Um, are you very into things like, I, I remember visiting one homebrew, one, another comic book shop. It was an entire four-hour session just on the economics of the <laughs> inn we were going to run. And I'm not wow. kidding. Uh, and I was like, this is intense. I've never done this. It was really cool. Um, but, you know, make sure that people know what you're into. Are you into something like Acquisitions Incorporated or is it intrigue like Candlekeep? Um, probably one of the big ones, are you rules as written or are you rule of cool? Um, uh, are you, are we all going to break out our player's handbook and argue about minutia or are we just going to say, no, even though that was technically not okay, that was really fun. Let's just, let's just do it. Um, and then probably the most important one is, uh, what's your views on PVP? What's your views on players against you know, players uh, stealing from other players or even attacking other players. For example, in Adventures League, that's verboten, right? Unless you're charmed, unless the DM is controlling you, yeah. you just don't do violence to to another character, right? No. Um, but uh, there's lots of players when I tell them to, they're like, oh, that's a bummer. I wanted to, I wanted to pickpocket the paladin. I want to see what the cleric does when I've taken his holy symbol. If that's your way, you know, that's not how I play, but if that's your way, that's fine. But make sure everybody knows what your understanding is. And that's especially true of homebrew, I think, because I think homebrews will tend to develop a shorthand. They'll tend to develop a shared style that the new folks might not know what they are. So you need to be conscious of what your style is and overt about it. So, yeah. So when you say overt about it, like what it, is this like literally something you will say at the beginning or like before people even commit to the game? Yeah, I think so. So with Adventures League, we always tell people this is a pretty formalized way. We're all going to share the gold at the end of the adventure. We shoot to have this before four and a half hours. There's going to be a set, uh, you know, these are, these is how leveling up works. Right. And so let people know, for example, in Adventure League, how it works. If it's in a homebrew, I will often try to have a zero session for the new player. Um, I will try as a DM to have a session with just me and the prospective new player first. Okay. And, and here's the other cool thing. Find a seam. Find a narrative seam for this new player to enter into whatever the cool, crazy, baroque story you've developed so it's not just, hey, and then a cool rogue shows up and he's like, can I come to? Instead, it's a cool rogue who was sent to you by your Harper's contact because this cool new rogue knows stuff about the evil wizard that you guys don't know about. And so they actually bring something to the table. So instead of them constantly being like, you tell me what's happening, what's happening next, what's happening next, oh, be sure to give good. them something so that they have an equal share in the narrative, so that they are fully invested in this. That's so that, good. Yeah. Thanks. And, and so that they know we curse a lot, or we never curse, or there's a lot of sex and flirting, or there's no sex and flirting, right? Let them, let them know ahead of time what, their, what the style of the game is so far, so that they can make an informed choice about what they want to do, what they want to roll, and, and if they want to come at all. 
Um, I I want to go back a little bit to like the introduction of the new player because that just that does bring up some really interesting. Like you can really set this new player up for success. <laughs> it's kind of like it. You can you can by giving them information that the party needs, or you know, like just hey, this is somebody that we want to have in our party. I can't tell you how many times I've been playing D anD D. A new person wants to jump in, and we're excited to have the new person be part of the group, but they're almost always in distress. They're almost always somebody that's like, oh my God, we have to drop everything we're doing to save this like character that just came out of nowhere. Yeah. And then like rescue them. But like to actually have somebody show up and just be like, hey, you guys need me, and here's why. <laughs> That's right. Love That's it. right. Yeah, yeah. Always. I mean, because because as the new person, they're already at a bit of a disadvantage. Yes. Right. So get them. Let them start from a position of strength. Yeah. Um, and if you are going to have them, I don't know, be the uh, be the uh, person in the evil rogues dungeon, and all their equipment is in the next room, and you save them. Um, have it be something like, "Darn you! I was so close to you know, you know, breaking the cell from the inside. I let myself get captured. Darn you! I, I didn't need your help at all. This was all part of a my yeah. elaborate plan, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, always work out a way for them to to be able to come in uh, on the strong foot, as it were. Yeah, definitely. Uh, rather than like, oh, thank you for saving me. Can I tag along? Right. Yeah. No, make right. them an asset from the beginning. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, cool. absolutely. Um, all right. What else you got? This is great. Well, I, I know from, from listening to your and and Greg, say hi to Greg for me, your, your wonderful show. Um, I, I know that you all have, have strong acting backgrounds. Um, always, always fall back on the rule of yes end. Right. Um, Especially with the new folks, especially with the new player, when they come in and they say something instead of saying, we don't do that, um, saying, try to use your creativity as a DM to affirm whatever it is they're doing, even even if it might not technically be right, uh, even if it's a little bit against the grain of, of how you and your friends usually play. But especially when they're beginning to come in, when they're fragile, when those bonds are, are tenuous, always fall back on the side of saying yes, and then this other thing happens. So that they get to try uh, to cast the spell that maybe doesn't quite work. The spell goes off, uh, but for some other reason, ah, we're back to where we were. But, but at least you did get to, to cast the spell, and you tried, and it was really clever, but for some other reason, we still need to think of something else. Um, yeah. Uh, an- another thing that I try to do is the new person will tend to be well. How, about, how do I say this? Will often be a little more shy for obvious reasons. Oh if yeah. They're, if they're new, if they don't know everyone, um, so when you get to the new room and say you're about to do a little uh, exploration segment, instead of saying okay, what do you do? And just letting whoever is more comfortable talking just start piping up. Um, I'll often roll for initiative and I'll say, this is not a combat initiative. This is just a a fairness uh, initiative. This is just to to decide who's going to do what or just to make sure everybody has an opportunity, a fair chance to have an action. Or I'll just physically go around the table and say, all right, so we're going to be in this room and I'm going to go around from my left to my right. Uh, Tell me what you're looking for. Tell me what you're doing. How do you, how do you try to figure out the riddle with the tiles? How do you, uh, what do you say to the ghost uh, um, who's looking at you all? 
So use some physical, uh, pardon me, not a physical, use some structure to make sure that everybody has a turn. And oh, so yeah. the new folk uh, has their, their, their turn, their opportunity to say something. Very important because, yes, like you said, a new player is, they will tend to be shyer. They also don't know what's possible. You still have to like, you know, encourage them in a way of like, well, you could try anything, but then That's like right. anything, but anything. Well, what does that really mean? So yes, letting them, making sure that they have the opportunity to speak, maybe hearing what other people are looking for or but maybe not making them go first. I don't know. Yeah, that, that's that, right. That's right. Yeah. And I mean, and again, as a teacher, I always say, and if I, if I call on you and you don't have anything, by all means, say pass or come back to me. Um, always, always making sure that, again, the, the primary thing is that we're having fun. The primary thing is that we're enjoying ourselves. So the formalism, the rules should never get in the way of that. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, let them let them pass to somebody else. Um, and, and like you were saying, uh, um, just tell me what it is. Tell me what it is that you want to do, and then I, as the DM, will make the ruling about what skill to roll or yeah. or how that works out. Uh, you don't have to know ahead of time uh, exactly which skill to use because I always find, um, and this this happened on Sunday when Liam was helping this 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 new person make a character. They get the abilities, they get the class, background, race or ancestry. Everybody gets that, and then you get to the long list of skills. And they go, oh boy, uh, and 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 he really deftly said, no, don't worry. Look at look at the ability that it's connected to. These are flexible. We'll figure out how to use those in play. So don't worry about. And when when we're especially with a new player, don't worry about these now. You'll figure it out as we as we play the game. Yeah. Right. So just tell me what you want to do in the room, and then I'll tell you what to which math rocks to roll right. and, and and how, which is the funnest part. The math it rocks. Is. Oh gosh, yes. The success and the failure. That's right. That's right. That's right. So this is great for a new person coming into a group um, that maybe is familiar with each other already or familiar with the dungeon master. But like, if you have several strangers at a table that don't know each other very well, do you are there tactics that you can employ as the dungeon master to kind of, I don't want to say like force bonding, force friendship, <laughs> but to like help foster that 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 trust that you need you know to have in the game and out of the game right i mean i think one thing is is you you say by fiat uh especially to somebody who's a new player we are here to cooperate we are not in competition you you quote unquote win dungeons and dragons by having a good time together that's how yes. that's how we all win so so kind of dispelling that fear of like oh my gosh am i in competition with this veteran player um, I think, um, and this is again to, to go back to my usual play, which is Adventurers League. Um, I've seen some some wonderful DMs come up with really great ways that are a little bit icebreaker, but also a little bit party bonding that you do at the beginning. Um, even if you have the tried and true, the six of you strangers come to the inn at the same time because you all got the same note of a origami heron telling you to come here <laughs> to meet a contact. Um, and just something as simple as uh, the barkeep comes to you and says, what will you have? Now, now let's use this chance to describe what your character looks like. 
Um, and what do they order from the menu? Uh, and it's just, uh, uh, you know, sometimes it can be a silly thing like that to, to kind of go through and imagine what would a crystal dragonborn uh, be eating at one o'clock in the afternoon in a desert or something like that. Right. Um, another friend of mine, uh, a DM by the name of John Marvin, has a really neat uh, tool to kind of break the ice and, and get people on the same side. He'll just point at, again, person on his left, he'll say, you met the person to your left when you both committed a petty crime in Baldur's Gate last year. <laughs> what was it? And then they have to think of it. Okay, next person, how did you get oh, them this out of this? What was it? And then the next one says, you met the two of them after whatever it is that the second person said. Um, how did you help? And then it's it's kind of like an old improv technique. Yes. Um, where everybody has to create a story together, which gets you into the mood of what it is that you're going to be doing for the next four hours, which is collectively telling a story. Um, That's and, brilliant. Yeah, he's, he's a wonderful DM, uh, and it's a wonderful tool. And, and I'll often use that... Um, with young kids, or like you said, with people who are absolutely brand new to D&D. Because while the skills might intimidate them, um, the narrative fun is something that everybody can just kind of get into. And you say, don't worry, there's no wrong answer. No one's going to tell you you can't do that. You're inventing a story together with us. So so have fun with it and, and uh, be invested in it. And it's yours as much as it is ours. And I love that you have created... The, the connection between the players because that t- always I love when like the dungeon master like weaves parts of our backstories together or has decided that or me and another player have decided that like we have a history together we're like we're best friends and, That's right. and it just it just makes the whole experience less intimidating knowing that you have like this fantasy buddy in That's the right. world with you it's That's it's right. really cool that's it. right. And, and as many of your pe- previous hosts have, uh, or guests rather have mentioned, uh, the good DM will take note on what people said during that initial story and try and see if you can't work that back in. See if you can't mention that again uh, later in the story to not only hook the party together, but kind of hook the story or link the story yeah. across time together. So that that whatever whatever that petty crime was that they did kind of comes back in some narrative way later in the adventure. So cool. I'm also seeing listening to you talk. There's a lot of similarities between teaching and being a dungeon master. There really are. They re- they they really are. Um, I mean, if you do them, uh, if you do them well, uh, and 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 I and this is something that's true. Uh, in both my teaching life and my and my playing life, um, the the human reality comes first, um, uh, and that is the the reality of what's actually happening in the conversation with the real beings is the most important thing. And so, if I go a little bit um, over time, if everybody in the classroom is okay with that, I'll do that. If if I need to change an assignment because it's getting in the way, I'll do that. And and for Adventures League, they'll even say. You know, here's some optional uh, spurs or some optional uh, directions that you could go in, um, but but only if it adds to the play, only if it adds to the fun. You can't just be like, "Stop talking." We need to get to the next thing now, right? right. That's that's the that's the opposite. So so I think in both cases, 
an, an awareness and a sensitivity to the to the social reality of what's happening. And and also in both cases, don't forget, people need to stand up and stretch and have bio breaks. So <laughs> so 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 don't for especially with little kids, like, okay, who, oh, wants, yeah. who wants to go get lost at the water fountain now? Go. Like uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll see you in ten minutes. Uh, um, that, I think that's always really important too. I do too. It does wonders for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Are we, is there, I mean, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. I, I mean, really all I would say is, is one of the first things I said, cultivate a culture of, of welcome, right? Yeah. Uh, n- don't just know it in your heart that you want to play with the person. Make it, make it overt. Uh, make sure that they know both through these, these, you know, these, these, these signs like a code of conduct, but also just your own demeanor, your own words say, Hey, I'm so glad you're here. You know, we started an hour ago, but we'd love to have you next time. Or, or sure, don't worry about rolling in a, a character. We'll, we'll, we'll pause the game while you, while you figure things out. But, you know, making sure that the new folks, whoever they are, uh, don't just, uh, they're not just welcome, they feel welcomed as well. It's really wonderful to know that there's people like you out there that are making this community even bigger and more welcoming. And I just, I just love knowing that. You're such a good advocate for D&D. Thank you so much. And, and Shelly, I, I really am in utter disbelief that I get to talk to you. I, I can't count the number of times that I've gone to the front of my player's handbook or some of my other books and be like, I know them. They oh talk to me. Uh, I'm so honored. Well, and, uh, and if I may, you, I highly encourage you to start that school club that you've mm, been talking about. Yeah, you will be fantastic. I'm thinking about it. Um, and if you are ever in the Spokane area, Please uh, let me know. I'd love to show you and anybody else around. And if and and if I'm not here, please visit Merlin's Games uh, on Main Street in Spokane. Uh, it's a, a wonderful community. And just again, thank you so much. Yes. I love D and I love talking with you. Uh, so thank you so much yeah. for having me. We love talking to you too. You're welcome anytime. But what if people in the community want to talk to you about? philosophy or other <laughs> tips about welcoming new people where could they where can they find you sure um, well my social persona is philosophy DM on Twitter is probably the best way to get a hold of me um, and if you want to know more academic things or things about philosophy <laughs> um, you can just find me at Eastern Washington University I where I am the chair of the Department of English and Philosophy. Love it. And also at Merlin's Games, maybe. At, and Sunday. at Merlin's Games, Sunday at noon. Um, that's that's when we're there. And Sunday at noon from, from noon until about 4.30. It's a lot Wonderful. of fun. And, and you can meet the amazing, the one and only uh, Bill Foreman, who is our, uh, what's the term? The forever DM. He's the almost forever DM. Uh, we, we try to, to rotate DMing uh, so that he doesn't always have to be the DM. But he's, oh, nice. he's, our, he's, he's our event organizer. And he's a wonderful guy, amazing player, amazing DM. And he really embodies this, this really welcoming spirit. Um, he welcomed me back into the game. I, I, uh, Shelly, I fell in love with D&D 40 years ago this week. This uh, week? You yeah, remember cause, the exact date? Yeah, because it was my birthday. Uh, oh! I, I turned 50 in a few days. Happy birthday. Thank you. And I was 10 when I got my, my first, uh, my first wow. D&D box. So, yeah, I was like, holy cow, I'm this old. This is a big yeah. anniversary. <laughs> it is. And I'll be playing D&D on my birthday, of course. Of course. What better way to celebrate? Can't have a possible better birthday. Oh, amazing. That's so great. 
Thank you so much. Yeah, thank yeah, I'm you. Thank well, you. Well, we we know thank if uh, if players do go to Merlin's games, they will be welcome because they will be. They absolutely obviously. will be. So awesome! Thank you so much. I can't thank wait so to uh, think of some more topics to have you come back any, and chat about any any time, any time. Right. Thank you very much. Thank Take you. care, Shelley. Bye bye. Sweet. Yeah. I feel like learning more about how to run games for uh, players who are new to each other. I mean, it's basically like how do you how do you run a mixer? How do you get people to like you know break the ice with each other? Right. Like a dinner party. Like a dinner party of strangers. And one of them commits a murder. Strangers. (laughs) And you must solve the murder. Ooh. Uh, Yeah. Um, I do think Dr. Terrence would be a wonderful um, host at a dinner party, by the way. I think so, too. And I think if we ever make our way out to Spokane, we should totally visit him. Just ask him to cook us dinner. (laughs) And please don't kill one of us. (laughs) Don't kill us. Cook us dinner. Let's play some D and D and teach us about philosophy. And maybe in that D and D game, you include the dodo bird, or wow, Greg, the woolly how, mammoth. How on earth would I even know how to do that? Well, I think you should listen to our interview with Lucas Ellers. Let's do it. Let's welcome Lucas Zellers to Dragon Talk. Yay! Yay! So excited for you to be here! I am so thrilled. <laughs> this feels like this. This feels like real. Like I'm like I've got a seat at the table. Thanks for having me, guys. You do. You are real. It is real. <laughs> you are not extinct. In fact, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you, you are here as a uh, uh, you know uh, narrative designer, a TTRPG uh, game maker, uh, making lots of products. Uh, a lot of them are having to do with the extinct animals in our own world and how they can be horrifying monsters that you can kill your players with. That's is that, me. Is that basically it? <laughs> That's my bag, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a cool idea, you know, to bring awareness, Thank you. educate in like a really fun way, like bring back the extinct animals just so they can be killed again. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah, it is one of those things that uh, it can be terribly maudlin to talk about, Uh, terribly tragic, terribly depressing. But I found that uh, D&D and TTRPGs have a a really fascinating and compassionate relationship with the monsters in the games. And so Mm. I thought it was a really, um, I thought this was a space that was perfect for this conversation. And uh, I really hope that you don't go and just kill them again uh, at no. the table. But even if you do, that's a kind of second life, that, that a kind of true resurrection for these animals that I'm, I'm happy with. That's really interesting, yeah. And I, I always go back to this idea, and maybe you know, you're the perfect person to, to discuss this with, where there were ancient fossils of dinosaurs out there that ancient man might have discovered and that's why there is such a prevalent uh, storytelling history, a legendary history of dragons and these reptilian monsters uh, that oh, roamed yeah. the earth before us, right? And so, is there any truth mm-hmm. to that? Do you do you subscribe oh, yeah. to that theory? Uh, well, well hmm. I, I have been challenged on it, and I know some of the research is is uh, is still ongoing. It's incredibly difficult to to discover and talk about accurately animals that, that don't exist anymore. But I can tell you that at least two of those animals are already in the book. 
Uh, <laughs> you know what they are? Yeah, tell us. Okay, so, and actually, I should ask you this first, because because you guys have been talking to game designers. You work with them all the time. What, to your mind, does the word dire mean? Urgent. Large. <laughs> In the context of game design, at least. <laughs> uh, really, really messed up. <laughs> <laughs> Not just a rat, but like a really like a, messed up. Yeah, don't wanna, like yeah, yeah. Take a rat and crank it to eleven. Yeah. So there's yeah, and but in uh, the evolutionary sense, it just means large, right? Is that is that wrong? Uh, that's my contention, and uh, and I'm not entirely sure. But the original direwolf, in fact, was mm -hmm. uh, and oh, now I have to pronounce Latin. I should have practiced uh, <laughs> Asinonyx diarus, which is the original direwolf, and it is straight up in the book. Uh, the other one is the cave bear, which is uh, listed as a variant of a polar bear. Like, give a polar bear dark vision, and then you have a cave bear. Mm. Um, the cave bear is actually where archaeology... It's the fulcrum where archaeology turns from history to... Uh, turn, turns from mythology to history. So as late as the 1700s, there were people going out um, and finding piles and piles of cave bear bones in burrows and caves all over Europe... Uh, in Asia, and a lot of those, uh, as late, they were still being depicted in like um, historical journals as belonging to dragons. Like there are engravings and plates of cave bear bones just listed as dragon bones. And the caves where they came from are often called Dragon's Cave or Dragon's Lair or Dragon's Hole. So yeah, there is a <laughs> extinction is part of the DNA of D and D. Um, Alfred Russell Wallace said in 1876, after, you know, being on the forefront of this sort of natural history craze of 19th century Europe, mm -hmm. um, that we live in a zoologically impoverished world where all of the largest and fiercest and strangest forms of life have already passed. And what he had in mind were things like the cave bear and the dire wolf. The woolly mammoth. The, mm, exactly. Hey, hey, that's on my list. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Your list of, of, of extinct animals to give a hug to? Yes, my favorites. <laughs> They're on my favorites. Um, I just want to step back a little bit because I find this very, very interesting. When, when Greg and I read your email, we were like, Oh yes, this is going to be this is amazing. Like uh, I don't I don't think we've talked about this topic at all on all of our years of Dragon Talk, but. Wow. Um, what what is your background? Like, how did you come to make this connection, and 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 where did all of this knowledge of of these wonderful creatures come from? <laughs> um, there's two answers to that. One is that it is uh, it's a part of my lived experience. That, that's the one that I want to go with because it, it was really just like growing up as a kid in the Midwest, reading Ranger Rick. Mm. Uh, okay. <laughs> And just like being out, like I used to, I used to just take off and walk through cornfields for hours at a time as a kid and come back when the dinner bell rang. Um, and the other, so that's the easy answer. That's the one that like holds on to my heart. The so you other found some extinct bones and, and made <laughs> stories about them? Yeah, in nothing. Well, those are dragon yeah. cornfields. <laughs> that does, uh, I, I grew up in Illinois and I'm surprised, I, I moved to Ohio later in life and I am shocked and surprised to find out how much natural history has uh, its roots in Ohio and the Cincinnati area. And when we uh -oh. talk about mammoths, that remind, ask me again, because <laughs> this will come up. Um, but the, the other answer is it's just not all that hard 
to come by this information. Um, I'm I'm trained as a journalist, not a biologist, but I have this uh, annoying habit of asking questions. And uh, I've just been really fortunate to meet people who are uh, already knowledgeable in this kind of thing and who are willing to give me the kind of day or the time of day so I can um, take these stories and put them in my D20 basement game. Well, and I love that because that is what uh, D&D in some ways uh, encourages is to have a full life of research and reading and combining legends with what we know about the real facts of our world and and, and mashing them together to tell fun stories, right? And so in some ways, as your, your, your uh, experience as a journalist investigating these things is also your experience as a dungeon master wanting to like find cool threads for your players to want to, to pick up and run with. Yeah, it's what I've been doing on the podcast Making a Monster for a while because every single monster that I found was a portal to uh, you know thousands of years of human history and anthropology and the way we tell stories to each other and the way we put handles on inconvenient truths. Mm-hmm. Um, and to, to discover that and then to be able to do that process in reverse on my own for some of the most tragic stories I know uh, has been incredibly fulfilling. Can you give an example, like when you talk about like every monster that you've discovered is a portal, like, can you, is there like, a, can you, can you walk us through that? Um, hmm. Let me, let me pick one that's not terribly long. Actually, you know what? Go long. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> this is long form. You can go as long as you want here. All right. Well, then let me tell you the longest story I know. Uh, <laughs> okay, Greg and I will be right back. <laughs> it's the story of Dagon. I thought I had discovered the story of Dagon when I met Alex Klippinger, who did uh, a homebrew Mm. version of it for 5th edition. Uh, And he had brought it forward from, I think, uh, 3.5 when it was listed as one of the... um, It was one of the the demon lords of the abyss, Mm. uh, which comes to us from 2nd edition, uh, Deities and Demigods, back when D&D found itself inheriting a bunch of uh, the Cthulhu mythos, uh, of which Dagon was one. Um, So... So already we have a 50-year publication history. And I'm like, great, we found it. Perfect. Uh, And then I found out that it was uh, Lovecraft's first story that he'd ever written. I think it appeared in print in 1920. Uh, And in Lovecraft's conception, Dagon was, of course, very classically cosmic horror. It was this phenomenally ancient and uh, incomprehensible ocean being that to see it and comprehend it uh, would would be enough to drive you mad. Very, very, very much the sort of Lovecraft formula. And there, I thought, was the bottom of it. Um, but there's a little bit of a there's a little bit of a hint in that uh, in that story, in which the protagonist goes to inquire about a certain Palestinian deity, and the bottom just falls out of this because Dagon appears in the Bible in several places, uh, mm-hmm. reaching back through the Old Testament, um, and uh, so him, so having like brought him forward through all of that, uh, it was it was Lovecraft getting access to all of this meaning and uh, depth that that the name Dagon has ha- had had since uh, prehistory in the Middle East. Wow! Mm-hmm. Right, and so it was all. It's again, it's every storyteller kind of filters it in this different way, and right, mm-hmm. just, that that hole goes down forever. Yeah, Dagon was probably mentioned, you know, as you said, prehistory, like even you know, pre-written history uh, amongst oral traditions uh, right. in that in that part of the world for years and years and years. Exactly. Yeah, that's fascinating. 
Um, so, uh, well, through your research here, you've also discovered a lot of extinct animals that uh, could be really great D&D monsters that have not yet made their way into, <laughs> uh, you know, the uh, monster manuals that you may have out there. And then you've made some some amazing products based on this uh, that are available on the Dungeon Master's Guild. I've been doing design work on the DMs Guild since 2018, and the whole extinct animals angle on this is is kind of a culmination of that. Mm. Um the there are technically three of them available on Drive Through RPG right now, and we just put them up there as a preview, um, and to to kind of raise awareness for this and to give people a way to take action about it. Um, but I I didn't really start doing this until uh, June of 2020, or rather January of 2021. Uh, it was when I started picking up picking this story up because I was looking for just a, a group of things that I could that I could bring forward some sort of uh, longer form, um, thematically appropriate like list of things, and then you know, it just clicked because all of, like, like we've talked about, some of these are already in the game. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that, that was when it started. So the bulk of my work has been just like playing around, um, doing the things that DMs Guild designers have done, pushing the limits of the game, trying to make things for, for my home games that I thought other people would use. And then, uh, the extinct animals project, the, the book of extinction is, is kind of the, the top tier of that. That's cool. It is. And it's such a cool concept, too. So, well, well, tell us a little bit about what the Extinct Animal Project is. Yeah, so we're calling it Book of Extinction, and we're taking, uh, I've got a list of over 100 extinct animals that I want to adapt to Dungeons and & Dragons. Uh, and every single one of them uh, has has its own, like, Dagon-level story uh, behind it. And some of them are are remarkably appropriate to what Dungeons & Dragons has always been trying to do. So we're putting it together. We're we're making uh, we're making a monster manual under the open game license. So very grateful to Wizards for having created that. And uh, no problem. And then we're <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna do everything. We're gonna tack on everything that we can. A few uh, a few character archetypes that I thought would be great to get into this. Looking at Ooh. the the kind of juicy bits where the real world and Dungeons and Dragons overlap, and how those mechanics have informed each other, and um, yeah, it's going to be, it's coming to Kickstarter in November. And that's what I'm going to be doing from now until then. <laughs> Amazing. All right. So over a hundred mm-hmm. extinct animals. Okay. And then when you're talking about the history, like, are, is this like, is it actually rooted in the real history or are you adding like, your own fictional details? Yes to both. Uh, let right. me give you an example. Um, I want to talk, uh, so pro- probably the, one of the ones that will be most familiar to D&D players, because it happens at lower levels a lot, is uh, swarm mechanics. Uh, and and uh, I don't have to tell you guys this, but if you haven't uh, been so unlucky as to, be, uh, as to have encountered a swarm of poisonous snakes uh, <laughs> in your game, uh, then... Or in real life. Or, or in real life. Yeah. <laughs> The way you render it at the table is that the swarm is a medium-sized group of tiny creatures, and they sort of act together, and they are capable of occupying another creature's space. It's terrifying. Uh, and there was an animal that that literally did this. Uh, it was the passenger pigeon. You might be familiar with this. It's at the top of a lot of extinct animals lists, because it was, at one time, the most numerous uh, creature, maybe the most numerous creature flat, but certainly the most numerous bird in North America. There were literal billions of them. Flocks of them would block out the sun for days, ankle deep 
uh, you'd have to wade through the guano they left behind. The birds were so heavy, they would break limbs off of trees. This was a biological storm. Uh, and that was just how it was in North America, pre-European settlement. Why were they called passenger pigeons? Because yeah. they, they were all on top of each other like that? <laughs> Presumably, yeah. They were really only comfortable hanging out and doing life with thousands of their closest friends at a time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so you uh, said they were bit, like they were heavy enough to like break branches off of trees, like them as individuals or them yep. when they were swarmed together? I, I mean, it's just a pigeon. Like it's, it's just the same size as a pigeon. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, but it, and I, and I have seen one of the one of the few remaining specimens. It's it's pretty much the size of a pigeon, but there were so many of them at a time right, that they would like have a, like a locust swarm or something like that. Exactly. Right? Like and and so point of fact, it's, of the sky. Yeah, it's not uh, it's not unlike that metaphor because they worked on the same biological phenomenon, which is, which is mast fruiting. Mm. So before European settlement, a lot of America was covered in chestnut and. Uh, oak forests, which periodically just tell each other, this is the year we are going to make a bunch of acorns and chestnuts, so many that no animal or squirrel could possibly eat all of them. And that's how we're going to make sure there's more uh, chestnut trees. Um, and passenger pigeons were remarkable in that they were very fast flyers, 60 miles an hour, I think was their top speed. Uh, the um, Oh my God. I know. <laughs> they would uh, make good, you know, vehicles yeah. for passengers. Too bad. The uh, Monty Python <laughs> fans in the audience, I think I've just solved one of your favorite, uh, <laughs> favorite questions here. But they were, eight, and there were millions of them all over the place. They were able to know where the mass fruiting was happening and go there. Uh, and that was their life proposition. That was how they worked. It reminds me of the images I've seen of like a rat king or a um, um, uh, a snake uh, uh breeding pit right where there's, yeah. like, they're all massing over each other and it feels like such a disgusting Ugh. thing for us but like with birds which <laughs> most people terrifying. love most people like pigeons yeah. except people for new yorkers yeah. new yorkers are the only people who know that pigeons are flying rats well but, the, those are uh mediterranean pigeons or rock doves. they're not even native to the u.s they should right. not be here um the passenger pigeon was the uniquely american pigeon and we don't have them anymore did uh, did did that uh, invasiveness drive away this peasant? Is that why they're extinct? No, although that is one of the reasons that animals go extinct very fairly often. Uh, in the case of the passenger pigeon, it was because of overhunting. There was no conception in anyone's mind that this was anything but a renewable resource. Mm. Um, there were there were literal billions of them, and they would they would nest in places acres wide. Uh, so they were just they were hunted on an industrial scale so much that the the barrels of the rifles that were used would overheat before you could uh, be done harvesting passenger pigeons. Uh, I've I've read it, I've I've seen it written that uh, westward expansion in the U.S. was largely carried on the back of such a, a readily available source of protein. Wow. Um, and by the time it became clear to people that this was uh, a problematic behavior, it was by the summer of 1910, the last passenger pigeon in the world died at the Cincinnati Zoo. Uh, she had a oh. name. It was Martha. Martha. Oh, no, Martha. Martha. <laughs> That's so fascinating because, you know, we hear a lot about American buffalo and about, you know, other things that were um, subject to westward expansion here in America. But you don't really hear about passenger pigeons very much mm. as being this, as you said, like this readily, you know, source of protein that is just now gone uh, from everyone. 
Um, My, in fact, maybe more so than you think. Uh, mm. The name Pigeon is all over the, the southern U.S. Uh, places like Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, mm. were... Uh, it was forged success- in pigeons. <laughs> it, it, it literally was because of <laughs> you know, all that guano they left behind. Great fertilizer. And yeah. uh, pl- think you could grow so much more in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee than you could elsewhere because those pigeons had been there. I love bringing this back to D&D, too, because it's very simple to re- in- reintroduce this extinct species into the the habitats that are out there now because so much of it is, is modeled after, you know, before industrialization, before this type of thing. So there would be these amount of pigeons out there. And then I immediately think when you say guano, that's the material component for the fireball <laughs> spell. And <laughs> how is it different? Bat guano no, is different <laughs> than pigeon guano and, and how uh, you could... High uh, sulfur content. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> bigger fireballs uh, <laughs> because of all this. And that's what you know, also really fascinating too... Um, the whole flocking thing makes it seem like there are just so many of them everywhere, but that also makes the population very fragile because if you uh, reduce the population to a certain amount before such of those big flocking things, then they just don't have the ability to create that mass numbers that are necessary to keep the species going. And so exactly. it's this almost That's counterintuitive ex- thing that like, oh, there's so many of them, but yeah. it's also more fragile than, than others, than other yeah. species. That's called extinction debt, when a species is still extant, but... Uh, is for a variety of reasons not likely or or has to overcome a huge obstacle in order to be able to achieve the life proposition that it had. Wow, and that's D and D to a to, you know to, to in many ways. What oh yeah, makes this, this game is so a swarm. <laughs> yeah, all I had to do to make this a D and D monster was crank it up to a, a gargantuan size, and uh, I, I gave it one ability, which was uh, to create passenger. Um, which was to take a, to absorb any other beast into the swarm, provided it fails the saving throw. Oh um, wow! Yeah, so it could so, take yeah. you up into the air. That's awesome. <laughs> what happens uh, to you if you get absorbed in the swarm? You become one uh, of them. I've limited it to beasts because I didn't want. I, I didn't necessarily want this to be like ah, uh, you know, you, you're a zombie now. But imagine, if you will, you put two of them together in the barn, and then suddenly the warhorse that you are very proud of is gone, but there's three passenger pigeons, and it becomes this sort of uh, exponential growth of the swarm over time as it uh, engulfs more and more beasts. And suddenly you're, you're, uh, you're in a town where the only option is to eat the pigeons, and people are very, very worried uh, about who's going to be next. Mm. Oh, it could be a way, too, just to make some tactical battles more interesting, right? Because you think of swarms generally are on the ground unless they're these flying creatures and then you could have you i'm throwing some ideas at you but you could have like a rule <laughs> where where um creatures or player characters smaller than medium could actually just become airborne against oh, their that's will very good right oh that's very good yeah and then it becomes <laughs> like all right how do we get them down safely you know get a feather fall spell going yeah uh, so can we tame them components? right i think fairies I think should be any... able to ride them Oh, yeah. I think that any single passenger pigeon is not really a threat, uh, which is one of the reasons why I put the uh, why I put just a stat block for what I think a passenger pigeon would be in the book on the facing page to to tell the story I just told and then have the swarm stat block on the opposite with the with the lore that we would write for a d and d setting. Um, yeah, absolutely get a passenger pigeon. They were beautiful. They were one of the only pigeons to be sexually dimorphic. Uh, that is the the males had colored plumage and the females did not um purples reds and pinks uh, and they were just beautiful to look at hmm 
that's I mean, and that's colors that you see in D and D all the time too <laughs> that you don't necessarily see in nature too often. So I love all that. All right, so passenger pigeons. What what are some other fun <laughs> uh, monsters slash ex- extinct animals that people could uh, uh, learn about? Yeah. Um, so the other thing, the other one that I want to hit was kind of the surprise, kind of a surprise to me. I didn't expect this to rocket its way to the top of the CR uh, chart, um, oh. but it did, and it did fast because the Pyrenean ibex is a small mountain goat uh, that lived in the Pyrenees Mountains between Spain and France, and it is the only animal to have the dubious distinction of having gone extinct twice. What? <laughs> <laughs> which to my mind makes it a lich and uh if there's <laughs> if there's one of two things that's going to end a party it's a dragon and a lich so this is now a cr20 mountain goat that's going to definitely ruin your yoga session uh, <laughs> <laughs> whoa what wait how how tell us the how story it, yeah how did it this happen okay so the uh the Pyrenean ibex uh, was already on the decline by uh the 70s um, in 1973, I think the, the year before D&D came out, it was declared a protected species by the Spanish government. Uh, and a management plan was implemented in the 90s. And I don't know if you remember like the, the late 90s when uh, CRISPR technology was starting to come out. And the idea of cloning was becoming a scientific viability. So there was a research team that went out to capture uh, a sample from one of the last Pyrenean ibex. Um, they cut a tissue sample from her left ear. They named her Celia. Um, and they released her back into the wild. And the following summer, she was found having been crushed to death by a falling tree branch. Oh, no. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is the part of the story that, like, ah, it's really hard to tell these. Um, so they took, that, uh, uh, they took that sample in 1999. Um, and over the course of the next 10 years, 439 embryos were created from that original tissue sample. Of them, 57 were able to be implanted in surrogate mothers, uh, uh, goats of other species um, that were thought to be compatible. Of those, seven resulted in successful pregnancies. And of them, one resulted in a live birth. And that ibex lived for several minutes before uh, passing away due to breathing difficulties from malformed lungs, uh, making it the second time that the Pyrenean ibex had gone extinct. That's heartbreaking. So the lich ritual did not work. Is that no? But it did. Like it did. It did make. It did give me this idea, right? That if a lich has a phylactery, and we were treating that that tissue sample almost exactly the same way that that a lich would treat its phylactery, its hope of survival. Like this is the way we're going to cheat death and make sure that we live on. Uh, Which makes. Which means that the the fantasy or the, the sort of lore version of this, the, the monstrous mythical version that, that we wrote um, was going to be a lich, uh, a creature that uh, in my conception was sort of created to be the perfect food animal, um, an animal that just sort of continues to give you steaks as long as you're willing to carve them off. Uh, by tearing off its own ear, it becomes unstuck in time. Uh, and uh, has this own peculiar brand of undeath that has nothing to do with like resisting rot or or maintaining the soul, just putting themselves slightly askew from the rest of the time stream, such that they never uh, they never pass away. Uh, and that's and from there it was just a simple matter of like adding the goat trait, uh, which is sure footed, uh, and then adding a bunch of lich traits and uh, a bunch of spells that I thought would be really appropriate. So. <laughs> 
blight, contagion, vampiric touch, and then of course time stop. Are they oh. so? This one is it a intelligent goat? Uh, no, that's the weird part about it. I left it at a at an intelligence of two, uh, <laughs> but a charisma of twenty. Like this thing knows what it wants, and I think mostly what it wants is to be left alone. Uh, but you know, if you are if you are so if you're willing to take advantage of this uh, peculiar magical quirk, then um, you can you can end up with a with a story that's, that's that asks a lot of questions about like who's wrong here and and what do yeah. we leave it alone and is this going to become a problem if we don't? How do you envision using this monster as an antagonist? <sighs> that one's tough. This is one of every time I write evil. Uh, an evil alignment or a typically evil alignment on one of these, it, it feels a little bit disingenuous. And this one, I, I think that like for them, for for the, and I, I called it the Bacardo, which is the Spanish name for it. Mm. Um, just to like have some way of talking about like the Perennian Ibex over here and the, the magical version, the Bacardo. Uh, so if the, if you were to ask me, I would, I would think that the Bacardo just wants things to stop. And gradually, the mountain that it lives on is going to just stop. Uh, and animals are going to stop dying, which is you know, sort of an extreme solution to the idea of extinction that is also yeah. untenable. Um, this, is a, this is a creature that doesn't give you easy answers. Um, this, is a, this is a problem with no clear solution. And uh, I just want you to, 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 to be scared of... Uh, to be as scared of the solution as you are of the problem. Because that's how I felt when I was reading about the Perennian Ibex. Yeah. I could see this being, you know, because certainly 20th level characters, you could throw bigger and bigger challenges at them and it ends up being a slog. This one sounds like this is more like a high level, like Star Trek episode or something like that, where it's more about (laughs) describing the ideas of this monster rather than just trying to beat it up with swords and spells, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's able to hold its own in a, in a straight-up combat. Um, <laughs> well, people will fight it. That's for sure. <laughs> people will fight it. Uh, but I also like the idea of this being like the MacGuffin. Like, this is the thing that... Oh, yeah. That, that people are trying to find, you know, like maybe yeah. it is more of an evil uh, lich-type character who wants to find this. Well, I do have a literal MacGuffin in the book. Mm. There's an actual McGuffin? Uh, pretty much, McGuffin? yeah. <laughs> Did you say Bob uh, McGuffin? Bob McGuffin, yeah. That's- <laughs> no, no. But uh, the people treat, uh, people have been talking about certain extinct animals in the same way that we talk about uh, the Holy Grail. Mm. Um, uh, for for animals like the Tasmanian tiger and the Perennian ibex, and in the U.S., the ivory-billed woodpecker, there is a, a huge cadre of people for whom this is uh, an object of, of of adoration, something that people go their whole lives looking for. Uh, so I, I did end up having to write that idea of like this creature is the thing that everyone wants in exactly the same way that the Holy Grail is the thing that everyone wants, the original MacGuffin, uh, and put that in the book. Ooh. So what what is that? And what's the animal in the book? Uh, yeah, it's the ivory-billed woodpecker. So that was a um, first of all. I have to I have to give you a sense of scale for the ivory billed woodpecker. It was a foot and a half long with oh. a two and a half foot wingspan, Whoa. which is not that big, but it's a bird the size of a loaf of bread. Uh, if you saw this bird, you you might be tempted to say, "My God, what a bird!" Which is exactly how it got the name Lord God Bird. Like it was mm. the biggest bird that anyone had ever seen, and it lived in the southeastern United States in uh, old growth cypress swamps. 
Um, its job with its, and most woodpeckers have a, a conical bill that comes to a point. The ivory-billed woodpecker was so big that it had basically a chisel. Its job was to break down uh, old trees and, and pull the bugs out of there and make its nests in there. And it was part of the, part of the way that, um, that the ecosystem sort of reused the, the, the growth of these trees that lived in it. Uh, the ivory-billed woodpecker began to pass away from habitat loss. There was a huge amount of uh, logging for the furniture trade after the Civil War. Mm. And uh, the last credible sighting of an ivory-billed woodpecker happened in January 1944. Wow. And it was only declared extinct by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in September of 2021. Wait, what? So that no one had seen it? It takes that long, typically? It, it ta- that's not unusual. Uh, the, extinct, the list of extinct animals is full of ghosts. There are things that have been described. Oh, wow. uh, and then no one just bothers to come back and find it or describe it further. So we have, these, uh, we have huge, huge numbers of uh, species that uh, get a first description and then uh, aren't revisited. Hmm. Uh, and the ivory-billed woodpecker was one of them, except that for that entire intervening time, there were the, there were all these bird watchers who were positive that they had seen one. Right, and you periodically, said credible sightings, but there were probably a lot of yeah. incredible sightings. Right, and periodically someone would would uh, say that they had sighted one, and the you know the ornithology the ornithologist literature would pop up, and people would discuss whether or not it was uh, whether it was credible or whether it was uh, an uh, imperial woodpecker. I think one of the, one of the other ones that's very close. And uh, so, yeah, uh, and people just people are unwilling to let this go. Hope is the <laughs> thing with feathers, Emily Aww. Dickinson wrote. And uh, nowhere is that more true than than with bird watchers. That is a specific type of of, of uh, personality type there, where they're like, <laughs> "Oh my god, we found something that no one has seen in a long time." Like that that idea of seeing something rare. Uh, is is what drives so many bird watchers. There yeah, and it's are. very D and D, right? Like you're going to go out into the into the old growth swamp uh, in places that really don't want you to be there, uh, <laughs> in search of the thing that no one has seen for decades or centuries, and then bring it back, bring that knowledge back into the world. The ultimate quest. I could totally see them NPC giving up a party. This go out, <laughs> retrieve this, and get this. Right. And did you give the ivory billed woodpecker uh, some magical properties? Like perhaps its bill uh, is is what's needed to save the princess from her <laughs> uh, disease, or you know, cure something that's uh, you know the the plague that's that's currently ravaging the kingdom. Like you can do things like that to actually make it not only a MacGuffin uh, for having seen it, but a MacGuffin in the story itself. Yeah, and for uh, I wanted to do it one better. I, I've called this bird the questing bird, and there are three. There are two things that you need to know about it. One is that quick quixotic quest that we've talked about. You know, there's your Scrabble word for the day. <laughs> and the other is uh, divine oracle. Um, this bird, the it's the the best trait that I gave it was the ability to cast any divination spell once a day. And uh, when you discover it, it will give you the answer to the truth that you seek if you can find it, um, which, is, which is kind of in homage to the way that people think about extinctions. Like, does this thing, do we need to care about whether this thing goes extinct? And one of the, one of the common arguments for that is, is it going to provide some sort of scientific insight? Are we able to reverse engineer the way that it is built and discover something that's going to make our lives better? 
So I wanted something that that did a little bit of both, that uh, that brought in the way we think about extinctions, but also the way we think about epic quests, um, and to to give you a reward that um, that the players have the ability to determine. So this is and it, and it's a so it's a tool for players to like pursue the the story that they want and tell the character that they have or move forward in their own personal arc, but it's also a tool in the hands of DMs to say, look, you know, whatever you need the story to be, whatever clue or mystery or uh, or knowledge or lore that you need to give them, you can give them if you find this bird. Um, I don't want to fight these monsters. I think their <laughs> stories are just too heartbreaking. Yeah, it's yeah. Oh. Um, the the ivory build woodpecker is one of the ones that does give me hope because I I've uh, I've had the, the ability to talk to people who have been bird watchers and have gone traipsing through Alabama forests looking for this thing, and uh, the amount of hope that they have that maybe this time it will be different is is what keeps me going in this project because there's always a moment at the bottom of the story where I'm like man we blew it uh, and we're the bad guys and that's really not the point I'm trying to make um, the the point I'm trying to make is that we we have we have the power to change this. Every species is a every endangered species is a success story waiting to happen, and those success stories do happen a lot. Um, these are just the ones that I can conveniently close. Like we could have talked about endangered species, and ha- you might think that might be a little bit more hopeful. But I mean, it took uh, it took over 60 years to settle whether the ivory-billed woodpecker was extinct. And it's just, it's, it's impossible to write for it if it's, if the story isn't like definitively over. Mm-hmm. Mm. That taps into so much of what makes, I think Dun- the, the overarching story of Dungeons and Dragons fascinating, right? Is that it's in so many worlds that there was this, this height of civilization. There was something that was great. It was a, a bit utopian, but something happened. Something messed everything up, and we are the people who are left behind to pick up the pieces, to venture into dungeons and find out the story of of what they did, if, if it was something specific, if it was like a, a, a transgression that could be reversed yeah. through some type of quest, or having it be uh, more natural, or, you know, like uh, something that, yeah. they had, that, that people didn't That's- have any con- control over, but then could potentially change and grow. And I think all of this is wrapped up, and you mentioned the craze in the natural history boom, but that was also coinciding with the archaeological kind of fascination and craze of going into Egyptian and, 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 and other areas to find out oh, yeah. about our past, right? And so th- this is all wrapped up in, in, like I said, the overarching story of Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, a lot of the pulp fiction that inspired the writers who were uh, who were in Appendix N, you know, the fiction that made D&D what it is, were... were uh, either writing in this era or in the generation after, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls had just been discovered. They were introduced to a world that was deeper and wilder and crazier than any they had ever known. And that's Dark Sun. Uh, that's the <laughs> that's the Wheel of Time. That's that's Tolkien in a way. His conception of history was a Tolkien, yeah. descending spiral towards less cool and less magic and less awesome. Um, and I think. Uh, even since, even in the last 50 years since D&D has published, we've been seeing something like that where uh, it's been called the sixth, uh, the sixth mass extinction, um, of which there have been only five in, uh, in history. Uh, you know, a, a great dying out, the likes of which we haven't seen in an epoch. And, uh, you know, it would be very easy to stop there, right? And say, like, this is the you know, we're living just before the beginning of Dark Sun or, or just after, just as the age of man begins in Tolkien's conception. But 
Um, I really think that uh, we're in a unique place where we have the ability to decide what the what the world looks like now, um, to craft the age of man in such a way that it isn't a, a descend towards sterility or, or a lack of vitality in the natural world. Um, and that's that's the kind of solar punk D and D that I, I was really surprised uh, and I'm really excited to see in Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel. I think this is uh, a part of the the DNA of D and D in a way that uh, doesn't come just from the the roots of the game, but from where it is now and the the people who are writing for it. Yeah, I love that idea that there's, like what I just described is a very fatalistic, like things happen in the past, we just have to deal with it. And uh, you're right that everything that uh, Aja George and Wes Schneider have been talking about and putting together the conception around Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel has been in some ways rejecting that like, oh, the past was great, we're yeah, just in-game you know, mentality. We're just uh, living through our lives uh, and trying to eke out an existence, and instead, just you know, moving towards something more uh, hopeful and more positive with all of these stories. Yeah, is that defined like so? When solar punk, solar punk D and D, can you like break that down for what what that means? I would be happy to. <laughs> So first of all, both parts of those word, both parts of that word are important. The first is punk, uh, and that's uh, that's that's what we get. You might think we get that from cyberpunk, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of the original sort of punk genre of literature. And gamers have this thing where if there's a punk on the end of it, it's just that thing, but cranked to eleven, right? <laughs> so if it's steampunk, it's very uh, steam, very pirates. Uh, if it's uh, cyberpunk, it's very computer and very sort of neon. Uh, and there is this sort of uh, Art Nouveau second cousin of of these future punk genres, which is solar punk. The idea that we're um, we're growing towards renewable, sustainable energy um, that doesn't prioritize this like gritty, fatalistic capitalism made me do it. The game that Shadowrun and other cyberpunk properties kind of thrive on. Not to say that isn't a bad story, um, but what solar punk does is say, you know, what if, what if if what if, if we got better, things turned out okay? Uh, and you mentioned Star Trek. Like, it's very much sort of Picard living on his uh, chateau uh, and finally being able to grow his vineyard after all of his adventures. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah I was just going to say that the way you're describing it is the way Star Trek is sometimes described versus Star Wars, where Star mm-hmm. Wars is, you know, uh, a lot more of the gritty, this is where... Um, uh, fantasy meets meets sci-fi and and it's in its storytelling uh but yes star trek especially the next generation series is all about forward looking and how you know we can achieve a utopia after uh potentially uh going through some some rough patches right and the punk part of this is uh more properly recognized as anti-establishment and i should say that like punk means a lot of different things to a lot of different people and i don't really come from that uh, I don't really come from that scene, but uh, there is a certain part of this that like, if things are going to work out better, we have to reject a lot of the establishment and inertia that we have now for just sort of doing things in an unsustainable way, because that's always how it's been done. We've sort of inherited a power grid that runs on coal or, or whatever. Um, and so to my mind, at least in the way that I'm thinking about this, is that uh, if we want that future where there isn't uh, a mass dying out and we can have a world that is uh, wild enough to give us more fantasy like Dungeons and Dragons, then we are going to have to be fundamentally unsatisfied 
with the way things are now and willing to go to some lengths to change it, which is pretty much what every adventurer is there to do, right? Yeah. It's, it's the chaotic good, right? Yeah. It's that, it's that <laughs> alignment where it's not necessarily keeping the status quo, it's breaking it and, you know, being okay with uh, the, the potential for some violence in order to break that system. And that's what's necessary uh, yeah. to 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 shift that establishment. Yeah. You're right. Again, not advocating for eco-terrorism here, but <laughs> do want you to know that like we got it, we gotta be, we gotta, we gotta be unsatisfied and we gotta yeah. be loud about it. And I think that's a big, I mean, I I've mentioned this a couple of times uh on this podcast, but I think a big reason why it's become more and more popular, Dungeons and Dragons has over the last five years. All the stuff about you know streaming and, and easier accessibility, sure, uh, but it also is this idea that you can do something. <laughs> yeah. Yep. In your game, you can mm-hmm. you can fight evil. You can change <laughs> uh, what's going on around you know the world that's created around your table. If even if you can't do so uh, necessarily uh, in, in in material ways in your own real life, and it's 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 that idea that I hope has more bleed into uh in, into real world things and you know this the solar punk i had always thought solar punk meant just like brightness i didn't realize <laughs> like light you know like having like you know it's not it's not the darkness of, of cyberpunk uh, as you're saying but i i love your interpretation and maybe it's just i was just ignorant of it that, that it's more about like renewable resources and having it more be ecological growth of of, of, of solar power as a as something i think that's yeah. I, I love that there's different interpretations of that yeah, it's a fairly new genre of literature, and it's still kind of figuring itself out. But it's, uh, from what I've read, the people who are who are writing in this space and and using that convention, that's what they want. And uh, frankly, I'm all on board for it. And I'm glad Ajit and the team at uh, uh, on the and the team on Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel are are on board for it too. Yeah, yeah. that's very cool. And um, you, it says here that we should ask you. About oc- octopuses. Now, first of all, I always, I did not know the plural of octopus was octopuses. I always call them octopi. I don't know why it's an octopi, but uh, well, that um, would be a, a Latin root uh, or a Latin pluralization. Except that uh, octopus is uh, built from Greek roots eight, uh, meaning octo meaning eight, and and pedo meaning foot. So, uh, yeah. Uh, that's uh, the, an acceptable plural of octopus would also be octopodes, uh, if you want to go that route. <laughs> <laughs> this is the best conversation. <laughs> this is amazing. You, is you are I, stuffed full of animal facts. <laughs> this is why I tell people to ask me about octopuses, because every single thing about them is as buck wild as the name. <laughs> yes, they are among my favorite of all animals. I'm convinced that if we mess up and we're not here anymore, they're the next people in line to inherit the earth. Like they're going to win when we're gone. Uh, and it's only a matter of time before they take their rightful place as our overlords. I, I'm here <laughs> for it. We're here uh, for the eight told. Yeah. I just recently, <laughs> I was searching for something else and I saw a picture of a, of a vlogger who had an octopus on her face and then she tried to pull it off and the, the, the suction cups were not letting it nope. go. 
Nope. Uh, so uh, they're, they're terrifying, but also amazing. <laughs> but they're so smart. And I love the fact, and you probably don't know more about this, Lucas, but like that their brains are not centralized in one place. They have almost more nerves uh, in their limbs than they do in their centralized brain. And so they almost are an entire brain themselves. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's a reason we made mind flayers out of octopuses, because it's a brain <laughs> on feet, man. Uh, and every single one of those limbs is covered in kind of a tongue. Like a lot of species of octopus are able to taste through their suckers. Uh, you think thumbs are cool? I'm indebted to John Oliver's recent piece and a lot of my uh, and a lot of my octopus facts. But uh, oh yeah, <laughs> they are you, wild. You see those uh, <laughs> uh, videos of them stiffening their limbs to actually walk upright on uh-huh. land, and you're like, yeah, ah, what? I didn't. And then they can squeeze through like a. a an area the size of a penny or something like yeah, they're just anything their beak can fit through so can the rest of them they have exactly one hard bony piece in their body and it's the beak that they use to eat through Ugh. and anything that that can fit through is a hole that is large enough to admit a full-grown adult octopus remember there was one at the seattle aquarium yes. Greg, that kept escaping yep and oh yeah like, oh, he's gone <laughs> they're again. playing with us <laughs> that's what i <laughs> they feel know like. exactly what's going on yeah <laughs> that guy is the adventurer who's going into like human lands he's a rogue and then reporting sure. oh, yeah. back to his his overlords <laughs> yep right in his own book of extinction about Humans. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Oh, the last cool. human. Oh no! Hope one of them cuts off their ear and keeps it in a safe place. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they have ears. I don't even know. No, the, the, the octopus adventure is telling them about us that we have to cut oh, off yeah. our ears and put it. Take in off a safe his place. ear. Yep. Use it as a trophy. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, they can gosh. clone us later. Oh, I like it. I kind of like it. Very meta. Uh, I'm going to go to the Seattle Aquarium and uh, go visit the... Is he still there? Do we still have an octopus there? There was one last time I went. Yeah. Um, Tell him I said hi. Will do. I hope he doesn't remember me. (laughs) He probably will. It's like, I I remember all. Oh, yes. (laughs) Yes. For sure. All right. So we we mentioned the woolly mammoth early on, and I want to know more about uh, the woolly mammoth uh, Oh yeah. Does the okay. woolly mammoth make it into the book of extinction, or can you not tell us who's who made the cut? Uh, I'll tell you who made the cut. The mammoth is already done, partly because that one is in the uh, is in the SRD. Um, but the the mammoth is important because the the American mastodon was the first uh, extinct megafauna or the first dire creature to be discovered, and it's the beginning of our knowledge of extinction itself. Uh, <laughs> this is a really? story that I love to tell because it, most people don't realize that extinction is a fairly new scientific idea. We grew up with plastic dinosaurs and like Muppets of them. Uh, so extinction is one of the ideas that that people born within the last generation just grapple with. Like it's it's part of their introduction to the natural world. They go to museums, they see skeletons of things that don't exist anymore. And as late as... Uh, 17, uh, as late as the late 17th century, people just assumed that every animal you could find was still out there. Um, Partly because as late as the late 17th century, there were huge swaths of earth that hadn't been documented by a culture with a written language yet. Um, Which is, again, part of that whole, like, uh, idea that fueled D&D. Like, what is out there that's scary and wild? So, you know, we would dig up bones of, of 
cave bears and sort of assume that somewhere out there is a very big bear that's probably going to leave another bone behind eventually. Um, so, Ohio, uh, pre, pre-European settlement, uh, a French expedition is working its way down the Ohio River, uh, and they wind up in what is now Big Bone Lick State Park. And I wish I were making that up, but I'm not. It is oh a my real God. place. I have a, a, I had a, a fridge magnet. <laughs> Did you really? <laughs> my college friend gave me because he's like, Big Bone Lick. Big Bone Lick. <laughs> <laughs> it's just childish, but uh, I mean... <laughs> Uh, that's that's where the big bones were. And one of the first bones that they dug up there was uh, a mastodon molar, which is, you know, I, I mean, you, it's an audio medium. So what it, what would it be the size of? My head, probably. Mm. Um, Just one tooth. Uh, like one tooth, 10 pounds. Crazy. Uh, and they brought it all the way back with them. They lugged the tooth and a couple other bones. They lugged them all the way back to France because they're like, have you ever seen a tooth this big? And everyone was like, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, like, people were looking for this thing. It was known as the American Incognitum. And Thomas Jefferson himself was pretty sure that it was somewhere out there in the unexplored American West. He wrote uh, in his notes on the state of Virginia in 1781 that such is the economy of nature. No instance can be produced of her having permitted any one race of her animals to become extinct of her having formed any link in her great work so weak as to be broken. And it was only after uh, those bones were brought to scientific uh, prominence with, uh, you know, with the one that was discovered in Ohio that people like George Cuvier began to suggest that, hey, maybe this is a lost species. Maybe it's not out there. Maybe we're not going to be able to fit it into our classification by looking at things that exist now. So for his for his influence on the idea of uh, Especie Perdue, which is you know me mispronouncing French now, so chalk that up to the second language I've ruined. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this idea of a lost species, Cuvier would come to be known as the founding father of paleontology, and I'm not the only one to argue that the American mastodon is its Mona Lisa. Interesting. Mm. So before then, I mean, the way you were describing what Jefferson was saying was that there was just, there's just no way that there could be animals that don't exist anymore. That idea is so new, and it is something that you're right, like it's ingrained in school kids to this day. And it's 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 interesting that we didn't. I mean, like they didn't know about soap and germs. <laughs> right. They also didn't know that there were uh, <laughs> soap. The germs had killed before. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wow. Um, so like, what are the chances that there will be other animals that we didn't ever even know existed discovered? I mean, that's like the world is pretty big. What if we're just looking, not looking like, how, how do we know? Whoa. This is part of the conversation my son and I were having <laughs> last night when, when I was telling him like about what this conversation was and he wants to know like his favorite <laughs> animal is the Meg. Oh, um, yeah, the megalodon. So he is like, I mean, obviously. In our mind, we're both like, they, they totally still exist. How would you know? The ocean is huge. It's so deep. Part of There's why no I'm afraid way. of octopuses. Like, I don't know what's going on down there. We don't there. know what else is down there. So then we had like this very you know deep discussion about like, what if there were other animals that we That's still don't, awesome. we, we don't even know ever existed because we've never found proof of them yet. Especially yeah. ones that are invertebrate that don't have any fossil record because there's no bones. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we'll never know. Or yeah. will we? Like, is there a chance? Like, how often 
does somebody Ooh. discover like this could be a different animal and not actually part of something that we thought we already knew? Yeah, you'd be better off asking a, a, an actual paleontology or, or geologist uh, grad student this question. But from what I've read, uh, it used to happen all the time. Um, like there was uh, in the Gobi Desert before, there, there was a bit of a fossil rush in the Gobi Desert because it was said to have been paved with bones. You couldn't walk in the Gobi Desert for the for for the fossils that were spread all over it. So for a while, it was very, very easy to find and discover the bones of uh, extinct animals and animals that uh, were never uh, were never known to science before. Partly in the same way that for a while, it was very easy to discover new elements. And there was this sort of gold rush of like, I'm going to make my name as a scientist by slapping it on this, uh, this, uh, this description of an animal that hadn't been described before. Uh, I think that has slowed down in recent time. Uh, <laughs> probably for obvious reasons. Like we've gotten very good at getting to places that we should that we couldn't have gone before. Right. <laughs> but, and, but even that that in, that has inspired things like Dune and inspired uh, you know in, in Star Wars when you see the massive uh, skeleton of a creature behind uh, yeah. in Tatooine when they're like walking around right like they're all parts of of our rich legendary storytelling. Uh, you know, speculative fiction is all based on on this idea. So, to answer your question, Shelley, we don't know, but I think Dungeon <laughs> Masters could tell us some really fun stories about them. Yes, yes. Uh, right? <laughs> Tons of uh, Eberron is great. At, Eberron is great at this actually too, because yeah. there's uh, there's these relics of of warforged titans and warforged colossi. Um, robots, ma- weapons of mass destruction as big as a kaiju that are just left behind to rust into nothing. And that feels very much like this uh, this sort of search for prehistoric megafauna. Yeah, oh, I love that. All right, so we've talked a lot about this idea of how it came from our real life and how it inspired D&D and how some dungeon masters could use this uh, stuff. But what's your what's your ideal campaign uh, to, to, I mean, because this feels like the basis of, of uh, of something that you could run uh, that would be like you know the entire concept of the campaign is about finding and discovering these a- these these animals that are no longer. Yeah. Hmm. So if so if you wanted to run a campaign, well, there's oh, okay. There's a couple ideas. I'm going to run through these real quick just because I know how much people like to make their own game, and I think there's a few here. Mm-hmm. First of all, there's the Voyage of the Beagle. <laughs> That was basically Darwin wandering around and picking up, uh, picking up skeletons and going like, okay, what do, what do we even do with this? Um, one of the megafauna that I wrote into the book was, uh, oh gosh, Macroshenia, I think, or Macroshenica, uh, also called the Long Llama. Uh, thought to have had a trunk based on the upward and backward position of its nostrils. Uh, just a giant, ridiculous, horse-sized ungulate. And uh, that's in the book because why not? Um, Wait, so, it's a llama yeah. with a trunk, like an elephant. Yeah, basically, pretty what? much, like a tapir the size of a horse. Yeah, yeah, that, that, <laughs> giant that's sloth. Picture, right? Isn't the giant yeah. sloth in that family as well? Uh, there is. Yeah, the uh, the Megatherium americanum, if you will. Uh, that was the the biggest. It, it itself rivaled only the mammoth for size, uh, and it was it occupied pretty much the same space in the ecosystem, just this wandering thing that was too big to kill and was uh, a primary consumer of uh, the um, uh, grass and leaves off of trees that would become sort of the, the bottom level of the food chain. Uh, so yeah, get you a, uh, get charter a ship, 
and sail to places like Chult. I think this is Chult, honestly, is the mm. is the whole megafauna. Um, or uh, uh, there's a there's a Jules Verne story about um, this plateau that no one had ever been to before, and then it was still full of the dinosaurs, but they'd never been. Um, this, you know, that's very much in the spirit of D and D. Yeah, yeah. Do the Isle Voyage of Dread, of the Beagle. that old, yeah. uh, the old um, that's uh, the module one. as well. Kind of makes me feel that. It's, yeah. yeah. So get you a ship and sail to somewhere where the megafauna <laughs> haven't died out. Right. Um, the That's other thing you cool. could do is uh, something I was shocked to discover, or something that I was shocked that I had so much fun making, was uh, juicing the lycanthropes in the book. Like, sure, we have a werewolf, but I want a dire werewolf mm. and a cave werebear. And heck, I want to wear mammoth. And one yes. of these, like these balloon, if you do the math on these, they balloon so quick. The wear mammoth is a CR 12. And just what it's going to take to bring that thing down could be a short arc on its own, especially since it's not really going to work unless you know the thing about lycanthropes. Yeah. Uh, so that's like, that's option number two. And I'm very excited to give people that when the book comes out. The other one that I think might hit a little closer to home is uh, something else that I'm hoping to do for the book. Um, extinction scenarios for common for favorite D and D monsters. I want to write. We're, we're we're still talking about this. We don't know how we're going to do it yet, but we we really want to write the last owl bear. Like, what happens mm. when you have the Martha of owl bears? What do you oh. do? <laughs> yeah. That's such a great thing. I My, know. It kills, man. Yeah. <laughs> and that's combining your ideas about solar punk with this whole extinction idea. Rather than always being backwards looking, it's like how do we how do we preserve life? How do we uh, continue this species in some way? And I think yeah. it is putting them in space. I think it's just getting them up on a spell <laughs> camera, putting them out in the world. It's the only way or in the in the universe. <laughs> the nice. Plant the seeds oh, with your spell jammer, right? Yes. Yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> it's not the phlogistrum anymore, I understand, but it's a big multiverse out there. Exactly, <laughs> right? And that could, could combine it. all those campaign ideas, right? Like if you're going on oh, the beetle in, in, in space. Yes, make me, oh, make me a spell jammer campaign. It's the voyage of the beagle. Done. Uh, you can do it. Greg, who, who do I have to talk to to write that for Wizards? Because I'll write that tomorrow. I, <laughs> Put it up right. on the Dams Guild. Yeah, right? <laughs> Put it on the list. Of all the projects that you're working on, it will add it to the list. <laughs> yeah, I need no another kidding. One. I need a hole in my head, but I will make space for that. I love Man. all this. I feel inspired uh, about all these things, and I hope folks, uh, you know, check out uh, uh, your your podcast, Making a Monster, which is about all these ideas, as well as uh, look up Book of Extinction when it is available because it sounds yeah. super fascinating. And Thank you. we want to make sure that people know how to find out when that book becomes available and and everything that you're working on. And if they <laughs> want to ask you about octopuses, where, where can people do that? Well, first of all, uh, you should know that a little piece of the book is out now. And the really important uh, bit about that little piece is that we, uh, doing a six-month run-up to a Kickstarter or, or like a year that I've been working on this is a bit too long. People might forget. We're using the intervening time to raise money for the Center for Biological Diversity. Mm -hmm. So you can get the first three monsters now. You can pay what you want for them. And everything we earn from... Oh, nice that preview is going to go to support the center. They're, they are a legal and media advocacy organization based in Portland. And I think of the 1,100 or so species that now enjoy protection under the Endangered Species Act, they are responsible for over 700 of them. 
So their track record of success is amazing. And it was really important to me that I don't leave people at the bottom of this despair with nothing to do, right? The best antidote to despair is action. So pick up, uh, put the passenger pigeon and the Tasmanian tiger and the great auk in your game now. Leave us a a couple of bucks if you want. We'll send it right over to solving this problem. Um, In the interim, if you want to know more about some of these stories and all this stuff that I can't fit into the book because I do not have the space. <laughs> um, we've got space on uh, Making a Monster, the podcast. There's uh, um, I talk to game designers like uh, Justice Arman and a couple of other people who a couple of other people who have been big on the DMs Guild, and uh, uh, about how they make their monsters and the decisions that go into them. There's a sub series, a, a little a little extra thing that I'm doing about make called Making a Monster Extinction that is about just the extinction stories and how we're going to render those in terms of Dungeons and Dragons. So this conversation, but uh, probably about 50 or 60 times as I go through the rest of these animals. And if you really want to talk to me about octopuses and keep me up at night and tell me (laughs) something I probably don't know, you can find me on Twitter. It's at Spark Otter. Amazing. (laughs) Love all of this. So Uh, cool. Such fun. We didn't even get into like you know, the P&W darling of uh, Bigfoot to like all this amazing uh, <laughs> uh, cryptozoology things that that are, are yeah. a, a part of all this, but really exciting stuff. I hope everybody listening is as inspired as, as uh, we are. And can I please tell my kid that it's possible that the Meg still exists? Meg doesn't exist. You don't know that, you, Greg. You can absolutely that. tell him. The it's ocean all, it's is about so... Hope. It's the, it's it's the it's the bottom. Hope is the thing with megalodons. Yes, <laughs> it's a mega. Pre- this is my theory. It's a mega predator that we would have seen some evidence of it. I How? think small things that like have evolved to live beyond our capability of seeing them right now are possible. But I just don't think anything like that large. Yeah, that is the trend of history, that thing animals get smaller over time. But do you know how long it took us to find the giant squid? A long time. But we had actual, <laughs> like, uh, legends and firsthand accounts from sailors that mo- nobody believed for centuries <laughs> to lead up to that point. Right. So that, and mermaids, our, too. Yeah. Mermaids are also real. Right. I'm going, the Meg is real. <laughs> All right. There All are right. people who still believe in the ivory-billed woodpecker, people who still believe in the Tasmanian tiger. That's the Australian Bigfoot. So, yeah. Uh, I believe... He, the children are our future. And they, <laughs> and they, uh, will discover, well. they will discover all of this teach stuff. Teach them well and let them discover. <laughs> and men. put it in our D&D games to kill. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> More importantly, put it in your T&D games so you can have the same conversation a hundred times and feel so much better about like the world that you live in. I want to introduce you to something that is crazier and wilder and more bottomless than you ever thought it could be. That's what we need. That's what we need. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much, Lucas, for coming on. This is Thank you, guys. It's been an absolute pleasure. So you know quite a bit uh, more about extinction than I thought you would. I didn't know I did, but I guess I do. Yeah. You had a lot of thoughts and theories and stories and you know it's it's fascinating to me i mean i think that is so much about why dungeons and dragons is appealing to people is this idea of like finding out about the past and learning about it and i've always been you know fascinated by history and natural history and and uh how things move and shape i mean we talked about that when we talked about maps and how maps are tell the story of 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 a landscape in a in a 
and the, and the societies upon it. Like, you know, that's, that's kind of what, to me, was really fascinating about Dungeons & Dragons and playing it. Yeah, so. very cool. That was a fun, fun conversation. So Absolutely. Check out what Lucas is doing with his Making a Monster podcast and, uh, you know, delve into helping out the, you know, potentially going, uh, endangered, that's the word, endangered creatures yes. uh, that are out there uh, and uh, with the Center for Biological Diversity um, uh, contributions that you can do for getting some of those monsters. So check them out. Yep, definitely. And they uh, infuse your campaigns with some of these ideas because they're, they're, it's really interesting. Yeah. And I would be curious to hear other people's ideas on how they bring these monsters into their games as well. And if you have any of some of those fun ideas, let us know. We're available. You can talk to us. I am at Greg Tito on Twitter and... I'm Shelly Moo on Twitter and Instagram. Excellent. Oh, and speaking of talking to us, thank you, wonderful, amazing Dragon Talk listeners, for reaching out about talking to us about our upcoming book. That's so exciting. I can't wait to guest on podcasts all across the D&D community to talk about this book. This book is going to be so fun. It's got so much one. If you love all the stories that kind of happen throughout the course of our interviews here, that's what this book is all about. Bringing those to life. Uh, we get You get to learn about me and Shelly a little bit personally. You get to learn a little bit more about the inner workings of uh, Dungeons & Dragons and the marketing and how that all worked and came together as well as just the history of the community. So we're getting ready to have a pre-order link pretty soon. We'll drop it as soon as we know, but it is, it's is—it's going to be soon. We're very excited. Yeah. So if you haven't reached out and you have a, a podcast or you write for a publication and you want to learn more about our book, please let us know. We would love to talk to you. We're very excited to talk about this book. I know. Turn it around. We're, we're not having the guests. We're going to be guests, Shelly. Scary. I we hope. Are guests. Oh, I we hope are we're. Guests. I hope we're good. I hope we're good guests. I don't know. Well, you're very good at hosting dinner parties, Shelley, so I think you'd be a very good guest as well. Oh, that would be fun. If all of our interviews could be centered around dinner parties. <laughs> I don't know if that would make good, clean audio, though. Poor, poor uh, Ryan would be like, can we cut out all of the smacking of lips oh, and chewing of cheese? Mm, there would be cheese. There would be so much cheese. Bury me in cheese. Speaking of cheese, you know who likes cheese? Drunky Two Shoes. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Too bad uh, her Wand of Wonder did not produce a Wheel of Cheese. Not yet. Uh, Yes, uh, she was able to uh, acquire a Wand of Wonder from one of the uh, Magist's Order who is defending the city of Waterdeep from a massive doppelganger uh, that is in its true form, full of bubbling and uh, disgusting flesh. And it is rampaging uh, in a gargantuan size, and uh, poor Drunky has his wand of wonder and is ready to do more. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do? Well, You're I'm in- now invisible. I'm invisible. So you cannot be seen except by someone who has magical means. I will go run towards the uh, doppelganger. Okay. Uh, it's about uh, 100 feet away, so it'll take you a couple uh, rounds to get to it. Remember, you were rescuing the griffin after it had crashed. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Takes you a round or two. Do you want to do anything as you're as you're rushing towards it? Well, because I'm invisible, I'm probably just like screaming, "Wahoo, woo!" Um, well, you're still audible. You can still be heard. I know, but you don't know where the sound is coming from. Oh, I see. Okay, so are you trying to distract it? No, I'm or? just. I'm just so excited that I'm invisible. <laughs> 
Okay. Woo! So there's this massive disaster <laughs> happening. You know, a, a huge uh, 40-foot-tall doppelganger wrecking stuff everywhere. And then there's screams, people yelling, uh, you know, people in pain who have been hurt by this thing. And then you hear a very happy tabaxi scream, wahoo! And it's, no, everyone's like, what? what? What's happening? What is that? I do appreciate you trying to give me a reason, a better reason than the one. <laughs> oh, because <laughs> you're distracting. No, no, just super happy to be invisible. Nobody can see me. And uh, all right. So, yeah, you get up to it. What are you going to do? I'm going to take like the, right underneath it, the wand of wonder. And I'm just going to point it up right up there at his face. Oh, my God. Nice. All right. Oh, face. Okay, good. I'm glad you said face. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, higher, I thought higher. it was something different. Nope. Okay, higher. you're angling differently. Got yep, it. Yep, yep. Okay. All right, roll your percentile dice. Let's see what happens on my this My percentile third. and my d10? Yes. 54. Fifty-four. You cast darkness. Oh, shit. Uh, and so uh, the... I want to get the, the radius here. Yeah. Uh, it is... A 15-foot radius. So you said you put it on its face? Yes. Okay. So you center uh, a sphere of darkness uh, is all around it. And oh, it, good. It, it okay, that's good. It actually is like very confused for a moment and doesn't know what to do. So you've, you've paused it from it was, you know, trying to, to punch and hit at some of the griffins that were uh, blasting it with uh, offensive spells. But all of a sudden, pff, a darkness appears over its face. And it's, it looks weird. It almost feels like... Uh, uh, a whole bunch of um, uh, like being in a dark basement, but in bright sunlight outside around its face. So it's it feels strange. Like you've never seen anything like this. Okay, but like all the the griffins and their their handlers are still zipping around. Yes, so- uh, and but you see them. Uh, you see one of them, and actually, it is your friend, the gnome. Uh, who says, and you see him kind of like giving commands. You can't really hear what he's saying, but you hear his high-pitched and all the griffins are kind of lining up. Oh, okay, uh, taking, good. Taking this moment of uh, respite from the doppelganger not uh, swinging around to try to all have a concerted attack. Good, okay. Next time, we'll see what how that resolves. Yes, I'll just start screaming, no me, no me, it's me. I did that, <laughs> I did that. Oh, but he, he can't see me. He can't he see or hear you, <laughs> but he's trying. <laughs> I really want him to be like, my name is... Shit, I forget what Bal- his Balthazar? <laughs> Balthazar, my name is Balthazar! <laughs> That's what he says in spirit, but he doesn't actually hear it. Yeah, he's busy. He's busy commanding his forces. All right, very cool. Close All right. All right.